Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. What God wants us to know is that he's in charge. And for those who know the Bible, it's becoming very, very clear that that is not a claim without merit. That is a claim that is rooted in absolute reality. God is in control of human history. God is in control of history. He is orchestrating the events of history. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study through the books of the Old Testament prophets. Join us as Pastor Brian resumes his teaching on Isaiah chapters 44 through 45. Now, here's Pastor Brian. The idol becomes the downfall, becomes the burden, becomes the thing that people are bound to and wish they could get out from under. But the Lord, on the other hand, the Lord, he says, I upheld you from the womb. I I have carried you. You know, I want a God that can carry me, not a God that I have to carry. And thank God the God of the Bible is the God who carries us. Just like he carried Israel of old, he carries us. And even to your old age, I am he, even to your gray hairs. This is particularly relevant to me these days. You know, I was, uh, my wife, Cheryl, she took a picture of me sitting on the couch with the dog on my lap. I think it was yesterday and she posted it on Instagram. And I didn't know that she did that. She did it stealthily. But um, later I was scrolling through my Instagram feed and I saw this picture of this like super gray haired person sitting on the couch. I thought, oh my gosh, that's me. Look at that gray hair. How did that happen? Well, it happens. And yet here's the good news. Even to your gray hairs, I will carry you. And, you know, I I just want to say that, you know, I met the Lord when I was just in my early 20s. And man, I can just say that God has been so faithful. He has carried me. And believe me, there were times when I absolutely needed to be carried. There were times when I could not carry myself at all. And the Lord carried me. And I, you know, sometimes lately, uh, Cheryl and I are coming up on our 40th wedding anniversary here next month. And we look at each other and we think, wow, we've been married 40 years. That is absolutely amazing. How did that happen? But we also, at the same time, and we're very thankful for God's faithfulness to us. But at the same time, we think of how God has, he's just carried us through so many things. He's been with us the whole time. And, and he's blessed us. And doesn't mean we didn't have challenges and difficulties. And, and we did have seasons where there really was a carrying that seemed to be going on. But all that to say, that's the God that we serve. He is the, the one who, from the womb, he has carried us from the womb. And so verse five says, to whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we should be alike. And so the answer is there is no comparison. And I listen to a lot of podcasts and different things, you know, and I end up listening to things where you'll have 
you know, atheists chiming in on different things and, and so forth. And they come, you know, with their clever arguments and, you know, thinking that they've really got one over on anybody who believes in God. And, 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 and you know, the, the longer I live and the more I listen to that stuff, I just think, how sad, you know, how sad, because every single person will come to a place in life where they will have to be carried. And if that person's life has been committed to idols, then they will find there's nothing to carry them because the idols can't carry them through. Whatever the idols might be, the idols of success, the idols of fame, the idols of, of wealth, the idols of control, power, whatever those things are, they, they all have an have a expiration point. They all run out, but not the Lord. The Lord says, who, who can you compare with me? The answer is, of course, no one. And so he's, now he talks about the idol, verse six. They lavish gold out of a bag. They weigh silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith and make it a god. They prostrate themselves. Yes, they worship. They bear it on the shoulder. They carry it and set it in its place and it stands. From its place, it shall not move. Though one cries out to it, yet it cannot answer nor save him out of his trouble. You know, in the Psalms, David wrote about idols and the futility of idols. And he said this, he said, they have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. They have a nose, but they can't smell. They have hands, but they can't touch. They have feet, but they can't walk. And then he says this, and those who worship them are like them. You know, we become what we worship. That's just a fact. We become what we worship. If we worship the true God, then we become more like him. That's what's happening. We're in a process of being conformed to the image of God's son, Jesus Christ. But if I worship an idol, then what happens is just as the idol is blind, the idol is dumb, the idol is deaf, the idol is powerless, I progressively become that. That's what the description here tells us about the idol. They, you cry out to it, it can't answer. It, it can't save anyone out of its trouble. Remember this and show yourself men. Recall to mind, O oh, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. Now, once again, as we've seen, this is God says that his ability to predict the future and then obviously to direct the future, because if he's predicting it, he's telling you the way it's going to go, it's because he's making it go that way. These are the things that he points to that set him apart from all others. So this is one of the ways that we know that God is God. And I think we've talked about this before, but the, the prophetic element of the book, prophetic meaning telling the future, or as it's referred to, forthtelling. So telling in advance the things that are going to happen. Now, remember in the context here, he's telling about this 
man that he's going to raise up. He's already given his name. He's going he's to raise up this man, Cyrus. And again, Cyrus isn't even born yet. But I was listening to a teaching the other day, and it was talking about the whole thing with Cyrus and, you know, talking about just kind of imagining what it would have been like for the, this young couple, you know, to have this child. And here's this boy that they have, and they're wondering, you know, what, what should we name him? And for, for whatever reason, they come up with the name Cyrus, and everybody agrees that's a good name. Well, that, you know, we read here in these Isaiah passages that it was the Lord actually who put it in their hearts to name him that. And here again, God is reminding everybody that, that he's the one who knows the end from the beginning. You know, I just finished reading the book of Revelation yesterday. And I'll tell you, man, he knows the end from the beginning. And it's amazing when, you, when you've read through the whole Bible and when you've done that a few times and you kind of get the sense of, you know, the storyline of the Bible. And, you know, anybody who's been with the Bible for a little bit, you've probably read Genesis, at least the early chapters of Genesis. And you know that in, the, in Genesis, the word Genesis actually means beginning. Uh, this is the beginning of everything. So in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. Darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the waters, and you know, God said, let there be light. And so you have the beginning of everything, and you have the creation of the material universe. You have the creation of the planet, of course, the stars and the solar system and all of that. And then you have the creation of the various life forms. You have the creation of man. And, and then you have a garden that God puts man in a garden. But then, you know, not too long into the story, we find that man is evicted from the garden because of sin, because of their revolt against God. And, and then the, the storyline of the Bible is how God is gonna work. He's gonna do a redemptive thing that's gonna restore everything that was lost. And so, you know, you think of it as paradise lost. So paradise was lost, but God's going to restore paradise. And when you get to the end of the book of Revelation, that's what you have. I mean, Genesis and Revelation are absolutely the bookends to the Bible. And this is where it begins. And this is where end, end isn't really the right word. This is where it all culminates because it doesn't end. It just becomes all that God has planned for it to be. And in finishing that up, like I said yesterday and reading through those passages again, it's just so amazing and so wonderful to know that God has a plan he has a plan for the entire universe. He has a plan for the whole planet. He has a plan to bring about a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem that's gonna come down and orbit the new earth. And, and it's just amazing. It's, it's so incredible. And with Revelation, we're not seeing anything in the book of Revelation that's being fulfilled currently except the first three chapters, because the first three chapters have to do with the current age, the age of the church. But when you get into the fourth chapter, everything changes. And not until we get to that moment in history, when I believe the church will be removed from the world, and then this new time will start. But when we get to that point, everything will go fairly rapidly toward the new heaven and the new earth. But 
even though there's nothing specifically happening in the prophetic sense that Revelation talks about today, what we do see happening is in a general sense, we see, as has been said many times before, the stage is being set. The stage is being set. The world stage, God is orchestrating the events in the world to bring about that stage. I remember years ago, Pastor Chuck, of course, who was so very passionate about prophecy. I mean, that was probably at the, you know, the top of his list, maybe just slightly under just the the gospel itself. But prophecy was uh, something he was so passionate about. But he uh, wrote a little book and it was called The Final Act. And he would often use that phrase, the stage is set or the stage is being set. But it, it truly is being set. You know, there are things in the book of Revelation that you read them. And of course, there's the symbolic aspect of Revelation. There's the allegory. But, but then in between that, there's, you know, you, you can see there's some clear pictures of just things that we don't have to allegorize or symbolize. We can see this is, this is literally going to happen. And one of those things that is so fascinating is there's this event in Revelation chapter 11 where there are these two witnesses. And we don't know who they are. The best candidates, I think, are Moses and Elijah. Um, But whoever, there are these two witnesses that are preaching, proclaiming the gospel during the the first half of what we commonly call the tribulation period. But the first half is going to be the rise of the Antichrist to power. But they're going to be preaching and they're going to be contradicting the message of this ruler who is gaining power and authority over the world. And they do that for three and a half years. Nobody can stop them. Any any attempt to silence them, they have power to bring down fire from heaven and call for plagues and things like that. That's why some people think Moses is one of them. But at a certain point, it says the beast who rises up out of the bottomless pit, it's a reference to the person we commonly call the Antichrist, he's going to slay them. And it says, now here's the thing, it says, and they're going to lie in the street of the city. And the city is Jerusalem. It makes it clear because it's a city where our Lord was slain. They're going to lie in the street of that city for three and a half days. They're not going to be buried. They're going to lie there for three and a half days. And it says that the world, the world is going to rejoice and actually create a holiday where people are going to send gifts to one another because these two prophets that tormented them have been slain. And the world, everybody, not just the people that can you know, see them right there in the present locality, but it says people all around the world. And then it says after three and a half days that the spirit of God will enter them and they will be raised from the dead and then caught up to heaven. And again, the whole world will see this. Now, the idea that the whole world could see something that's happening in the city of Jerusalem, how could that even be possible? Oh, when the book of Revelation took place, it certainly wasn't possible, was it? It wasn't even possible a hundred years ago. It was not even totally possible 50 years ago. But it's absolutely possible today, right? I mean, somebody could be there with an iPhone just videoing the whole thing, live, you know, just 
just showing it to you right there live. So things like that. And then there's always been this belief among people who were, you know, interested in Bible prophecy that there would be a, a global government that would be established, a global economy and a global religion for that matter. And so we see the stages being set for all of those things. And the one thing that you can see is how feasible all of these things are now with all of the technology and things that we have. But we don't know the details of what a mark is going to look like. But, you know, we see that there's uh, one of the things that's specifically said there in Revelation 13, this is 11, 12, and 13, is that there's no buying or selling without the mark. So everybody's going to receive a mark on the right hand or their forehead. Some of you, you know this. And that they cannot buy or sell without it. Now, Again, wait, well, how, how is that going to happen? Well, that, that can happen so easily. Everything's been moving toward globalization and we're going in that direction. So I know I got off on a bit of a tangent there, but my whole point is to come back to this and listen to what God says in verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times, things that are not yet done. That's what I was talking about, the book of Revelation. He tells us things that have not yet happened, but are going to happen and are in the process of developing. And we can see it right before our eyes. But then saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. And what God wants us to know is that he's in charge. And for those who know the Bible, it's becoming very, very clear that that is not a claim without merit. That is a claim that is rooted in absolute reality. God is in control of human history. God is in control of history. He is orchestrating the events of history. He's allowing things to go certain ways because they are all part of this process and this plan that he has to ultimately send his son back to establish his kingdom over the earth. And there are many other things that we could talk about. The one thing that I always come back to, that I always say to me is the inescapable evidence that we are on a, a prophetic course that God has set that is the Jewish people. And the existence of the Jewish state after 2,000 years of dispersion and persecution and various attempts at absolute obliteration, and of course the most blatant one was the attempts by the Third Reich, the final solution of Joseph Goebbels and Heinrich Himmler and Adolf Hitler to just do away. And, and actually, they wanted to rid not just Germany of Jews. They wanted to rid the world of Jews. They made that very clear. And, and yet, it was out of the fires of the Holocaust that the nation of Israel reemerged in history. Nothing ever like it had happened before. And of course, nothing since. And, and that is always, to me, when we talk about God being sovereign over history, the Jews are a great testimony to that fact, the existence of uh, not just Jewish people in the world, but the nation 
a Jewish nation that traces its roots back to Moses and further back, obviously, to Abraham. So God's saying that his counsel will stand. He will do his pleasure, calling a bird of prey from the east. Now, this is a reference to Cyrus, a bird of prey. He's coming to bring judgment and he's coming swiftly. That's the idea. That's why he's using the analogy of a bird. The man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. Listen to me, you stubborn hearted who are far from righteousness. I bring my righteousness near. It shall not be far off. My salvation shall not linger. And I will place salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Now, here's one of those prophetic words that have a near and a far fulfillment. And we've talked about that before, how going back to Isaiah 7, 14, you remember the virgin will conceive and bear a son and you will call his name Emmanuel. And and before he knows the difference, what is good and what is evil, before, you know, he transitions from nursing his mother on his mother's breast to eating uh, solid food. These words are going to be fulfilled. But then we know that that was also a futuristic prophecy of the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. We talked about that before, how Matthew made that clear to us. So here, this is speaking of what God's going to do as Cyrus comes, but it's also looking ahead And he says, my salvation. Now, the interesting thing is the Hebrew word for salvation here, maybe you know this, but the name Jesus, the Hebrew pronunciation of Jesus is Yeshua. And Yeshua means the Lord is salvation. So when you see salvation in Hebrew, you basically have the name of the Lord Jesus right here in the Hebrew text. I will place salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. And so the Lord is declaring here, he's even in kind of a a subtle way, he is giving the name of the Savior. And so come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. So chapter 47 is basically almost exclusively speaking to Babylon. So here, In chapter 46, speaking to Israel, God reminding them of who he is, how he's carried them and so forth. So chapter 47 is really kind of a a pronouncement against Babylon and in a sense, mocking, in in, in a sense, it's a mocking of Babylon. Now remember, Babylon is this this extraordinarily great power. Uh, Babylon, the Babylonians would have never dreamed, just like the Americans could never dream that they could ever be conquered, that they could ever be on the, the other end of the power spectrum, that they could have ever gone into captivity or they, they couldn't even imagine it. They couldn't even dream it. I mean, they, they were the superpower. Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled 15 New Testament Words of Life, a New Testament theology for real life by Dr. Nijay Gupta. Words can change their meaning over time. 
or they can carry a different meaning depending on the context in which they are used. So what is the meaning today of words in the Bible like faith, grace, hope, or peace? Do these words still have the same meaning today? Do you really understand what they mean in the Bible? These words not only have a rich history of meaning that is found within the whole Bible, but they also have a powerful significance for our lives today. You'll learn what it means to know God, to be changed by His favor, and how to lean into a redeemed future with an expectation of wholeness, goodness, and harmony. This book will bring theology into your life in a very practical way, as Nietzsche helps you to reflect on how each of the 15 words might look like in everyday life. If you're interested in what the New Testament has to say about God, God's people, or God's world, then you need to get this month's resource from Back to Basics. The book 15 New Testament Words of Life, a New Testament theology for real life by Dr. Nijay Gupta, is our gift to say thank you for your donation to Back to Basics. So we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Isaiah. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.